Well, it's good to see all of you. Hey, listen, I'm going to start off with a little disclaimer this morning. It's possible, there's a really good chance, that by the time we finish this message this morning, some of you are not going to like me much. And after the service, you're going to get in your car and your spouse is going to say, well, what do you think of that message? And you're going to say, well, what I think about that message is that Paul should just mind his own business. <laughs> and some of you are saying, ah, that's never going to happen, Paul, because we never talk about your messages. <laughs> that's fair. Listen to me. As sincere as I can possibly be, this message this morning is as much for me as it is for anybody in the room, maybe even more so. In the two weeks that I've been working on this message, I've been convicted by it myself. I've been wrapped around the axle of what it is that my study of the scriptures have demonstrated once again. And I am accountable to it. And I share it today with you as the heart of a fellow sojourner who has to reconcile my life to what it is that we're going to share with you this morning. Does that make sense? So let's just jump right in. John was one of the disciples. It seems though he had a very close relationship with Jesus. It's sort of like they got each other. John understood the heart of Jesus in a way that perhaps some of the other disciples didn't. God uses John to not only record a record of the life of Jesus in a gospel, but he also writes a couple of letters to the first century church. And in his first letter to the church, he writes this. Now, now listen to this. We know, we know that we have come to know him, Jesus, if we obey his commands. What is he saying? He's saying the way that we can assure ourselves that our relationship with God is legitimate is that there is a desire and an inclination and a movement in our hearts and our lives to obey his commands. The man or the woman who says, oh, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. I mean, that's, those are stiff words. And the truth is not in him or her. What, what he's saying there is they're deceived. They've deceived themselves. But if anyone obeys his word, 
God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in Christ. This is how we know that our relationship is legitimate and sincere. Look at this. Whoever claims to live in him must walk or live as Jesus did. I mean, that's really, really straightforward. So, you want to see something interesting? I think it's interesting. Maybe you'd be interested in it. I want, I want you to see the evolution of a very particular set of instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples and to an audience who would listen to him. So we have this encounter. Sadducees and Pharisees, they were religious groups in Jesus' day. They were often trying to find occasions to um, engage Jesus in a debate, particularly about Jewish faith and the Mosaic law. They loved to challenge Jesus to see if they could kind of trap him in a misunderstanding or inconsistency in his understanding of the scriptures. So we read about this in Matthew chapter 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, in other words, they had engaged him in an argument and he had quieted them. The Pharisees, they got together. Well, now it's our turn. We're going to ask them a question. And one of them, one of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, the Mosaic law, which is central and foundation to all of Jewish life. And he's an expert. Like he's made his life and his, and his um, living studying the law of Moses and deciding how it should be portrayed in people's lives. An expert in the law, they tested him. Now, this wasn't a legitimate question. This was all designed to be a test. They tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, Typically, when we think of the law, most of us were accustomed to thinking of like the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments is just a fraction of the law. In fact, if you study Mosaic Law, there's about 633 different commands that God gave to the nation of Israel. And so this expert in the law is asking Jesus, of all those 630 some commandments, which is the greatest one? Like which one goes to the top of the list? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. In other words, love the Lord your God with everything that's in you. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second, wait, 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 wait we didn't ask you for two. What's the greatest one? And the second one is like it. Like it, how? Like it in that it's just as important. It's also the greatest, I, in the heart and mind of Jesus. I can't separate the two. You don't understand the one without the other. The second is just as great. And that is love your neighbor like you love yourself. 
that same diligence, that same care, that same concern, that same sort of priority or urgency that we move to meet our needs. If we're cold, we get a blanket. If we're hungry, we get something to eat. If we're thirsty, we get something to drink. If we want a job, we will work really hard to get it. That same sort of concern, that same sort of passion to meet our own needs. He says, I want you to love your neighbor like you go about loving yourself. And then here, here's such an important statement. He says, all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jews often looked at the Old Testament scriptures as having like two primary um, ingredients. There was the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the prophets, that was like everything that, that came after these spokesmen, these ambassadors on behalf of God who spoke to the nation of Israel. And so Jesus is saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. The entire Old Testament can be summed up with these two instructions. You want the cliff notes of how to understand the Old Testament? Understand this, love God, love your neighbor. Everything fits into those two expressions. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Now, who, who's answering the question here? Jesus. Okay, now I want you to see something really interesting about how this discussion evolves throughout the New Testament. So we come to the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul writes most of the letters of the New Testament. This one he writes to the church in Rome. He says this, let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Wait a second. I thought Jesus said that the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. But whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet. Whatever other command there may be is summed up in this one command. Love your neighbors yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, wait a second. Did Paul not get the memo? Had he not been paying attention that day? When they went through Jesus's answer to the expert of the law that said the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And yet the apostle Paul says it's love your neighbor as yourself. So what's happening here? Look at this book of Galatians. Paul's writing to a church, to a group of churches throughout a region. He says for the entire law. All of it is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. And again, you go, wait a second. I have Jesus on record as saying, love God, love your neighbor. Yet Paul's saying the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. James writes to the early church, 
If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, the noble, the the most uh, kingly of laws in the scripture, it's this, love your neighbors yourself, and if you do that, you're doing right. I go, what's happening here? How did the early church get to this? You want to know? I think the early church was whittling it down to the very brass tacks of what it is that God wants us to understand. I think he's saying this. At the end of the day, don't tell God how much you love him if you're not loving your neighbor. I think that's what the early church is discovering We can talk all day about loving God, but if we're not loving our neighbor, according to John in his first letter to the church, we're we're liars. The truth is not in us. So the early church is discovering, hey, let's, let's not just be people who talk about loving God when we don't do as well loving our neighbor. So so you have the early apostles writing things like this in the scriptures. James writes this, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can that faith save them? Well, there are some people who would like them to think so. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, well, I, I, hope, I hope it all works out, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs... James is right. What good is it? In the same way that faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. John writes this. This is how we know what what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. He didn't just tell us that he loved us. He made this enormous sacrifice for us. And we ought to have the same sort of a sacrificial spirit. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then he uses this very practical example. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister who has need, they they need something that they don't have, but somebody else has it, but they have no compassion, no concern, no pity on them, that they don't do anything, they they aren't moved in any way to act. John writes, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, Let us love with actions and in the truth. Later, John writes this. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister. Here's that word again, man. That stings is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen, they they can't love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this commandment. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So at the end of the day, don't tell God how much you love him if you're not loving your neighbor. 
do something, anything. I think it's the most practical teaching of the scriptures as it relates to our lives as Christians. Do something. But whatever you do, don't just talk about it. Don't wish that you could do something about it. Don't wish somebody else would do something about it. For the love of God, don't do nothing. Get involved. Get involved. Ah, the old getting involved part. You know where the rubber meets the road. And it can get uncomfortable. And it can get awkward. And it can get expensive. And I think sometimes that it's the getting involved part. That we as disciples of Jesus, we reveal what kind of disciples we really are. So let's look at another passage of scripture highlighting the teachings of Jesus. This is a very popular passage of scripture. I've been hearing it since I was in the third grade. But over the last two weeks, reading it again and studying it, it just hit differently. And I was convicted by what I read. On one occasion, here we are again, an expert of the law. An expert in all things having to do with Jewish life. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He, he's, not, he's not coming sincerely. He's not really asking for Jesus to help him understand something. He's looking for debate. He's looking to stir up trouble so that he would have an occasion to accuse Jesus of something wrong. He stands up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you say that I need to do in order to enter the kingdom of God? I love it. Jesus is such a great teacher. He says, you're an expert in law. What's written there? I mean, if anybody should know the answer to this question, it should be you. You're an expert in the law. What is written in the law, he replied. How, how do you read it? And the lawyer answered, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, with all of your mind and love your neighbors yourself. Did he get it right? Did he get it right? Sounds like it. Again, I have Jesus on record saying that very thing. Jesus says, nice job. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. He, he knew that he had been, he'd been called out. And so now, in a very lawyerly fashion, he wants to debate words. What are the meanings? What are the nuances? He says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story. 
There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 17 miles and it's all downhill. He was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. The nature of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho provided a lot of hiding spots where bad players could lay in wait, find an unsuspecting traveler. And in this story, he was attacked by robbers. And here's what they, they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. So a priest happened to be going down that same road. And when he saw the man, it's not like he didn't see him. You couldn't have missed him. He was in, in the middle of the road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a, a Levite, when he came to a place and he, to the place and he, and he saw the man in the road, he too passed by on the other side. In the nation of Israel, there was a structure of priesthood. Priests who served on behalf of God as representatives to the nations or primary functions were to um, oversee all the activities of the temple. There was the high priest who saw, oversaw all the priests. Then there were numerous priests who served the people of the nation of Israel by providing for uh, offering of sacrifices and expressions of worship. Levites. Levites were like attendants who worked in the temple. They served in support of the priest. But a, a Samaritan, a Samaritan, Jews, they didn't like Samaritans. They thought of Samaritans as half-breeds. They were a group of people who had intermingled in marriage with other tribes, other nations. They were still Jewish by faith, but true Jews, as they referred to themselves, looked at Samaritans as being um, fakes. They weren't as legitimate. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to the man. He didn't go around the man. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. And he brought him to an inn, presumably in Jericho where they were traveling. They brought him to an inn and he took care of him. He spent a few days there helping the man nurse his wounds. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper with these instructions. Would you look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have had. You understand the story? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. And then Jesus says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. 
And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Do you remember where it all started? It started with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer was to love God and love your neighbors yourself. And then Jesus responds, Jesus responds with do this and you will live for an eternity. Do this and you will, what's this? What, what is he supposed to do? Well, from my best study of the passage, do what the Samaritan did. Do what the Samaritan did. You see, in the mind of Jesus, you show God you love him by loving your neighbor. You show God you love him by loving your neighbor and... Loving your neighbor is the act of doing something to be of help to someone who is in need. It's not saying the words. It's doing what love looks like. Did you see how I got there? Kind of quiet, aren't you? You're already getting mad at me. So let me highlight a couple of observations. The big question, the, the lawyer asked it, and we ask it. If we're honest, we ask it. Who is my neighbor? Well, I, this, the simple truth is this, that Jesus defines neighbor much broader than just the people who live next door to you, who live on your street, or who live in your subdivision. That's how we think of neighbor. Oh, he's my neighbor. Why? Because we live in the same neighborhood. When Jesus used the word neighbor, he just thought of something much bigger. Your neighbor is anybody that you meet wherever you go. Every person that you lay eyes on, every person that you rub shoulders with is your neighbor. So think about that. The teller at the bank that you use is your neighbor. The young man who bags the groceries that are at the end of the checkout is your neighbor. The Amazon delivery person who drops off packages at your door and knocks and then runs off. That's your neighbor. The friends who follow you on social media, they're your neighbors. The crew that works at your house, they're your neighbors. The other parents of the children at school or on your sports teams, they are your neighbors. The customer service agent that you talk to on the phone to try to get something solved, that's your neighbor. The members of your homeowners association. <laughs> they are your neighbors. Your ex is your neighbor. Your ex's new partner is your neighbor. 
The person who's nothing like you and everything unlike you is your neighbor. That person whose lifestyle and politics are completely opposite of yours. They are your neighbors. Everybody is our neighbor in the mind of Jesus. According to Jesus, if they are our neighbor, we are to love them by caring for them. Okay, so this this is where the Spirit of God starts to turn the screws a little. Certainly did in my life. I say this not as the preacher. I say this as a fellow sojourner. Be very careful of the eternal internal dialogue that seeks to relieve you of the responsibility to love somebody. Did you get that? I say be very careful of that internal dialogue because it says something about the truth in us. Be very careful of the internal dialogue that seeks to relieve you or release you from the responsibility to love somebody. I don't have to love them. You know, this has been an issue for a long time. This has been an issue since really the creation of mankind. Remember Cain and Abel, the Garden of Eden? They were brothers. And Cain murders his brother Abel. And later that day, God comes to Cain and he says, uh, Cain, hey, where's your brother? Do you remember what Cain's response was? He's like, <laughs> I don't know, God. What am I? Am I my brother's keeper? And you know what the answer to that question is? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. We, we are our brother's keepers. So then, okay, so then everybody I meet is my neighbor? Yep. So then we ask another question, this honest question. You're not wrong for wondering it. It's normal. Well, am I responsible then to care for every single person I meet? Yes. And no. Yes, we are responsible as Christ followers to have a heart of concern, a heart of compassion, a heart that cares for every single person that we encounter. Every single one. We ought to begin with a heart of concern for them. That there's some sort of tenderness 
about Jesus that's reflected in us toward them. As Christians, our general disposition ought to be one of care and concern to others. I don't, I don't, I don't know how we get around that. Jesus models that for us over and over and over again. Jesus demonstrates that every single person he encountered from religious leaders to prostitutes, his heart was moved with care, concern, compassion for them as human beings. Look at, look at this passage. Jesus, he went through all the towns. He went through all the villages. Teaching in their synagogues. He was a rabbi. That's what he did. And he was busy proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And healing every disease and sickness. And I love this line. When he saw the crowds. These great big groups of people. He had compassion on them. The way that he saw them, the way that he looked through his eyes, what he saw was because they were, they were harassed and they were helpless. They were like sheep that didn't have a shepherd to take care of them. I remember when my boys were young. And we, we had them involved in Little League. Baseball. And we'd go out to Northrop Park for opening day. And there'd literally be thousands of people there. All the kids dressed up in their uniforms and their moms and their dads and their aunts and their uncles and their grandpas and grandmas. Big celebration, opening day. And I, I, I'm just telling you, I would stand there and I'd, I'd look around. I'd look at all these people. My sons, they went to Fair Oaks Ranch Elementary School. And Fair Oaks Ranch has this thing called um, Cowboy Breakfast. And we'd go to Cowboy Breakfast. And there'd be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Elementary school age children and their parents and their grandparents and their aunts and uncles. From time to time, my wife, she likes to go to the theater I said, my wife likes to go to the theater. Not necessarily my favorite thing, but I, we go to the Majestic Theater. And it's a beautiful venue, isn't it? And I sit there in my seat and I look around and I go, all these people. Look at all these people. There's times I go to H-E-B, H-E-B and I think, look at all these people. <laughs> And I'm driving around and around just trying to find a parking spot. And I look at all these people in these big groups and I think to myself, honest, honest truth, I go, where do all these people go to church? And it's not even about them coming to our church. I'm just like, where do they go to church that they're somehow enfolded by a, a family of spiritually minded people who will care and, and have concern for them and help, help them as they journey through life? Where are they going to church? I would love for Sibylla Creek to be the church they come to, but I just want them to be surrounded by somebody who will care for them. And I think, 
I think that's generally the disposition that Christ is inviting us as Christians to have about all people. A spiritual concern. To look at our world through the eyes of Jesus and see their need and the brokenness that sin has created in our lives. Knowing that Jesus and Jesus alone is the one answer that can help them with all of that. And you look at those big crowds and you think to yourself, Paul, there's no way that I can possibly meet every single need that I encounter. And I go, you can't. You're not supposed to. You go, well, how do I know which ones? Let me give you two guidelines. Two, two rules that are really helpful to sort of navigate a world around us that's full of needs. You ready? This too. I mean, that's easy, right? You can remember too. If God places a person in need in your path, don't ignore them. The Spirit of God can help you recognize that. Especially if you generally operate from a heart of compassion. If God places a person in your path, like he did the priest, like he did the Levite, like he did the Samaritan. If God places a person in need in your path, whatever you do, don't walk around it. The second rule is this. If God tugs at your heart to help, don't ignore him. He won't tug at your heart for every possible need in the world. So just pay attention to the ones where he does. Don't ignore him. See, here's the thing. When I read this passage of scripture, I realize that the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, they're all three very religious people. They knew what God's commands were. Their lives were steeped in an understanding of what God wanted for them as Jews. And, and they were all human. They were, they were human beings. And what we see is that two of them made a choice and one of them made a different choice. Two of them chose to go around the need and act like they didn't even see it. And one of them moved toward the need and just did what he could do to help. All three of them had the exact same opportunity. All three of them had a mind that went into action to start considering, what am I going to do right now? Because they were human. Their brains would have been working. And all three of them wrestled with trying to justify themselves for why they shouldn't get involved. But one of them, in trying to justify himself, realized, I can't. It's, the need is right there in front of me. And I must do something. All three of them might have thought, I'm really busy. I got to get to Jericho. I have a meeting. I'm really busy. If I stop and tend to this man in the road, I'm going to, I, I, I just can't afford to do that right now. I can't be late. I have a place to be. 
And so what, what two of them said is, this place that I had to be was more important than a man dying in the road right in front of me. I don't know what to do. I, like the priest, the Levite, evidently said, I, he looks in really bad shape. I, I don't know what to do. I, I, I can't get involved. I, I don't know how to help. I, I don't know what he needs. If I, it won't make any difference. He, he's going to die. It won't make any difference. I've got my own concerns to take care of. I'm headed to Jericho. I, I'm on business. I got things to do. I, I, my, my own life's, I, I'm focused there right now. That's not my responsibility. So we said, be very careful about the internal dialogue that seeks to relieve you of the responsibility to love somebody. And I'd add to that, be very careful about the rationalization not to lift a finger to lend a helping hand to someone in need. That's what I'm concerned about. In my life and in your life as your pastor, I'm concerned do we spend too much time rationalizing reasons to not get involved to justify ourselves? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. This is how we reassure ourselves that our faith in Jesus Christ is legitimate and real. So I leave us with this question. Jesus answered the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, with the more important question, and that is, what kind of neighbor are you? Because that's really most important. There's no end to the needs of our neighbors. The question is, what am I doing to be a neighbor? like my Savior Jesus asked me to be. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's uncomfortable to sit in it. But that could be the most valuable thing that we do. Is be honest to it. 
Otherwise, as John writes, the truth isn't in us. So what do you say, Sibilo? Let's us be the kind of people who think about and are concerned about what kind of neighbor am I? What kind of neighbor am I? Thanks for listening. I may ask you to stand together. If I have not had the occasion to meet you, I'd love to make your acquaintance. I'll be here at the front of the auditorium following the service. Just come up and introduce yourself. And uh, I'll look forward to meeting you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you loved us enough to not yank us around, to lead us on, to mislead us in any way. You, you told us the truth. And the truth is such a beautiful thing. The truth is such a freeing thing when we move toward it. And Father, if we understand what the scriptures say over and over and over again, it seems as though our love for you is demonstrated and proven by our love for others. Help us to have the spirit of the Samaritan. That we don't just walk around and walk away. That we move toward the need. We help where we can. As an ambassador of your love. As disciples of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. All right, everybody. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.